Most of you would be familiar with the scripture that speaks about being ready, always ready to give an account for our faith or an explanation for that which we believe. And so, Bob, (laughs) if you get a phone call at quarter to ten on a Sunday morning and David says, I've got no voice or something... Actually, it's one of the preacher's worst nightmares. You know, depending on your profession, I guess your nightmares are shaped in different ways. But uh, one of mine, you know, you're standing up in front of everyone and you look at your notes and they're blank. Or you just can't read them or, you know, something else has gone horribly wrong. You've done all this preparation and there's nothing there. And you're going to go, what am I going to say? There's been one memorable occasion in the life of this church in our time, the last four years when... At about nine o'clock, I think it was, on Sunday morning, Matt said to me, are you preaching or am I? (laughs) Some of you might remember that occasion. Uh, Actually, well, let's just say, um, our communication had broken down and uh, and both of us had to carry some responsibility in that space. And so we had half an hour to prepare a message. One of the better ones too. That's <laughs> when, that's when you just say, "Spirit of God, take over," because I've got nothing. However, I'm mindful too of the importance of preparation. So this week you're not getting a half an hour prepared sermon, and the Spirit of God will speak through this because God does honour us as we study His Word. We're going to do that. So Jonah is the book we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jonah chapter one. I'm going to read the whole of chapter one just to place. Uh, our story, our passage this morning into its broader context. So if you've got your Bibles, grab those. Uh, We're going to start at Jonah chapter 1 and read through the verses that we looked at last week as we talked a little bit about the ways that we might run away from God. We talked about how uh, in one sense Jonah was doing the typical kind of turning his back and running from God but there are other ways of running away from God. And this week we see the consequences of Jonah's running. So let's read the passage together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away. Whoops, sorry. Uh, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went a aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain said to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Uh, Ivan, I'm going to need you to drive that because the remote's not. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? 
They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What an interesting story. How long have we got? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word, a word that has been preserved for us, given to your people, preserved for us, and we do pray that your spirit might speak through it today as we unpack the depths and riches contained within it. We thank you that we see you at work in this. We hear on the lips of people considered by Israel pagans worship of the true and living God and not in the midst of the crisis but at the end of the crisis. Lord, that's really interesting too. So bless us as we, uh, as we study this scripture. Grow us in the things of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if, whether you've ever had the experience of trying to do something and have the absolute opposite as the outcome. Let me give you an example. For instance, um, you've got a lovely, a priceless vase that sits on your shelf, something you obtained through, um, you know, Ming Dynasty kind of era. I know no one's got those, but uh, it's one of those, it, it's, it's that. It's been handed down from your great-grandmother's great-grandmother who brought it out from Ireland in 1862 or something like that. And you've got family coming to visit and you think, you know what, I'm just going to have to make sure that that vase is protected. So you take it and you put it up out of reach on a high shelf and just as you're doing that, you think that will be the place where it will be safe and you turn and your hand catches it and it teeters on the edge and then before your eyes it falls in slow motion and there's nothing that you can do as it shatters into a million pieces on the floor. Ever had that happen? or something like that happened, set out to do this and this was the result. Set out to have a conversation with someone that you hoped would restore a relationship and bang, it all blew up in your face. I'm seeing a few heads nodding. It's an interesting thing as we look at this story, there's some correlation between that experience and what we see in what we've just read because... Jonah, who's been given this commission by God to go to the city of Nineveh, wants nothing to do with the conversion of the pagans. He wants nothing to do with pagan people turning back to the Lord. He runs in the opposite direction and yet, in the context of him running in the opposite direction, what happens? Pagan people fall on their knees and worship God. How did that happen? Even as Jonah is being turfed overboard... As you see there at the very end of this chapter that we've just read, the, uh, the uh, sailors end up offering a sacrifice to the Lord and making vows to him. How curious is that? Jonah who's doing the opposite and here's what happens. Quite a few years ago, back in our time before children, we used to live uh, in Robinvale. Some of you are familiar with Robinvale. 
Um, we had a lovely big flood there one year too and we used to take our canoe out onto the river. I know you're not supposed to do this but in the flood's best time actually because you could go motoring around through all the billabongs and this and that. And we decided on one particular occasion to grab some of our youth group guys and we took our canoes across to the New South Wales side to a lake that was normally dry. Now you've probably seen, you know, downstream there's places like that, lakes that fill up in the floods and then drain away. Uh, there was actually two lakes. We had a family that were living on a lake called Lake Benanee, which was a permanent lake. It would fill up and then because of the way the sand hills worked, it wouldn't drain away. But this other lake was normally a dry lake. I can't remember the name of it. But it was full. The water would have been probably three metres deep at least, I'm not sure. I could tell it was roughly three metres because it was a lake that was filled with old dead trees because they'd sort of died. That's a pretty stupid <laughs> statement when I think about it. <laughs> uh, but also there's lots of lignum, you know, that sort of scrubby, bushy stuff that grew and the lignum was pretty much, the water was pretty much at the top. And we decided to paddle across this normally dry lake into Lake Benanee through the creek and then back up to our friend's house. So we set off on this afternoon in our canoes. We had a canoe, I had a canoe that was kind of closed in with a cockpit kind of affair. Life jackets, always a wise idea. A couple of boys in another canoe, a couple of boys in another one. And we set off halfway across the lake, about three kilometres from one side to the other, around about the middle, a storm brewed up and the wind came down upon us. Now I can't describe to you exactly what happened in that space except just use your imagination that even though it's a shallow lake, it's not a huge lake, strong wind, waves started to blow up and the canoes are rising and falling and the water's starting to wash over the bow and we're looking and saying, this isn't a great situation that we're in here because if we capsize, it's going to be very hard to get a boat up in these waves and if we capsize and we go and grab a tree, who knows what's living in the tree? Because there's normally dry lake beds, you know, full of all sorts of creepy crawlies and slithery things. And you might just find yourself sharing a tree with a big ground snake. And so halfway across we were really becoming a little bit anxious about what was going to happen. Eventually we managed to get around into the creek towards Lake Benanee and it all kind of became sensible. But generally speaking, I say uh, generally speaking, the reason I got you to talk about boats before is because as Western Australians, most of us, we're not all that fearful of water, true? We're okay about jumping into a boat, mostly. Some of you have been on a cruise, yes? Some are looking forward to going on a cruise. Uh, well, you know, COVID changed that attitude a little bit, but uh, we're not so fearful of the ocean, we're not so fearful of the sea, but that's not true of the people of Israel. And this is an interesting little part of the backstory that goes with this story of Jonah. You see, the people of Israel's ancestors came from the desert, they were not seafarers. And you'll actually see, if you read through the scriptures, a constant motif running through. The sea is often conceived of as kind of being deep and dark and scary. And that's actually woven into this story of Jonah as well. What we see in this story of Jonah is Jonah in the midst of this storm. Storm is kind of like the manifestation in some senses of evil. In fact, this storm has absolutely nothing to do with evil. It's actually a storm that God sent uh, in, in his uh, desire to prevent Jonah from succeeding in his running away. But if you look broadly in the scripture, you'll see this idea that the sea is a place to be feared. And that motive, that theme is actually running 
through this story, the story of the book of Jonah as well. This sea idea of Jonah trying to escape and escaping by sea, that's a real problem. He's going to extraordinary lengths. And sometimes we too go to extraordinary lengths in our attempts to avoid being obedient to God. Isn't that true? We will do anything to avoid obedience to God. And as we see from verse 4 to 5, however, God was not so easily avoided and did send this storm, this storm so severe, and this gives us some idea of the severity of it, so severe, in fact, that even the seasoned sailors, the ones who were used to being on the boat, they were fearing for their lives. I was on a canoe, I was a bit anxious, but we weren't really fearing for our lives. These guys whose life was on a boat, whose life was given to seafaring activity, were fearing for their lives. This storm had followed Jonah's disobedience. There's an interesting little application. We won't drill too deeply into this one at this point. But it's worth, um, worth just making the point that sin and disobedience is always followed by a storm. Let's think about that for a moment. The Bible does not say that every difficulty we face in life is the result of a sin. The Bible does not say what we need to do is pray and all our problems will go away. It doesn't say that. But it does say that as long as sin remains unconfessed, as long as we harbour stuff and hide stuff and cloister stuff away and pretend that uh, it's not important, it ultimately will result in some form of difficulty. In Jonah's case, the storm happened pretty much straight away. In other situations, it might take time to become obvious, but they will eventually. So verse 5 tells us that the sailors were terrified and, as would normally be the case, they cried out to their own gods. In a vain attempt to save the ship, what did they do? They tossed the cargo overboard. I'm really glad I had not consigned any of my stuff to that ship, you know. They were trying to lighten the load and so overboard went this and overboard went that. Where's Jonah at this stage? Well, we discover that Jonah is down in the bowels of the ship, somewhere down where the cargo probably would have been stored, sound asleep, probably exhausted, Exhausted from the exertions of running from God, exhausted uh, from the exertion of his disobedience, exhausted from maintaining that kind of energy that's necessary to, uh, to rebel against God. And it's interesting if you have a look at Jonah, who's asleep in the ship, and the sailors, there's a really interesting comparison between these, uh, these two groups. It's clear from these next few verses that the sailors were very much in touch with what was going on. They knew that this was not an ordinary storm. It was a storm of supernatural origin. Jonah, he was out of touch. He was snoring his head off. Interesting that these pagans are actually acting for the common good, whereas Jonah was consumed by his own problems. It's interesting that they prayed to their gods, whereas Jonah remained prayerless. It's interesting that they were fully open to calling on Jonah's God when they became aware of the situation, whereas, by contrast, Jonah wasn't that interested in calling on his God at all. What a difference there is 
between those two, sailors and Jonah. In every respect, their behaviour is more honourable than that of Jonah. And as we read it, in some senses, as you think about that, it's embarrassing to admit it even, isn't it? Isn't it embarrassing to admit that there are occasions when people who are far from God actually act in a manner that is more morally responsible than Christians sometimes? I don't know if you've ever had this situation. I've tried to think of an example and I can't off the top of my head, possibly because there have been lots of them and I've just tried to forget them because they are so embarrassing, where I've acted in a certain way and somebody who's not even a believer comes along and does something that just puts that to shame. You know, I might have an attitude or have made a decision or have said something and somebody else comes in and says something else. They're not a believer. They've got no loyalty or affiliation to God, but they actually bring out something that is of a higher moral standard than what I've said. That's embarrassing, isn't it? It's hard to watch it when it happens. It's even worse when it's you that it happens to. Even the Gentiles, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they, are, when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own consciences and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. See, one of the things we've got to keep in mind here and as we read this passage and recognise is this, even non-Christian people do have some kind of moral compass, distorted as even as ours. And so... As we read this passage, and I think this is one of the messages that God wanted his people to hear from this scripture. Remember, this is a word for people who are highly nationalistic, who are very focused on their own race and their own, and their own nation. God wanted them to hear that, that insight and wisdom may come from the most unlikely sources. And God can use the most unlikely sources to challenge his people, to confront his people, to encourage his people, even to school his people. And Jonah is down there in the bottom of the boat, probably exhausted by his attempts to run away from God. And then he wakes up. Now, I want you to imagine how that might have happened. Back up a little bit, at the start of the story, God said in Hebrew, and I won't try and say this in Hebrew, but basically the Hebrew said, get up and go. Jonah's in the bottom of the boat there and the captain we discover, if you have a look at the passage here, the captain uh, goes down into um, to Jonah um, and shakes him awake and uses exactly the same word, get up. Now Jonah who's in a dead sleep, has anyone had one of these experiences? You know, you're absolutely unconscious, you are catatonic, you are zoned out. What other words can we use? Are there other words that we could use? You are paralytic. <laughs> Maybe not that one. <laughs> and suddenly you kind of, you're swimming back into conscious, you, the world, you're not sure what's real and what's not, where does the dream? Jonah's been dreaming about God's call, get up and go, get up and go, and suddenly he's hearing those words in his ears, get up, get up. The captain's shaking him awake, get up, he's hearing exactly the same words. It's a very interesting little play on the words that the author has used here, using the same language for the 
call from God and from the captain. Get up. Don't you care what's going on here. Call on your God. Maybe you'll take notice of us and we won't perish. And the captain's message to Jonah really is the theme of the, of the message today. You know, Jonah, don't you care what's going on because don't you recognise we are all in the same boat? Every one of us. Us pagans and you, Jonah, we're all in the same boat. There's an interesting uh, little message in this passage again and I think this is something that God would have wanted his people to hear and that includes us as well. And it's not going to be unnoticed by the astute Hebrew reader, whether believer or pagan, Christian or non-Christian, we're all in the same boat. We all live in the same world, don't we? Jonah wanted to work exclusively for the benefit of his own people. Jonah just wanted to elevate the Hebrew people, my people, the Israelites, that's who I'm going to serve. And God wanted him to learn that he's actually part of a much bigger community, not just his faith community. That's an interesting lesson. It's a big world that we are part of that God has placed us into. And I emphasise that because I reckon it's a temptation. It's, it's an increasing temptation, in fact, in a world that's becoming even more secularised and antagonistic towards Christianity. A temptation for us to cloister ourselves in our Christian community. I used to smile, um, you know, talking to some, uh, and this is not an ageist comment, but some of the older folks in the congregation years ago who would talk about what church was like when they were growing up. They would go to church in the morning on Sunday. They would have Christian Endeavour on Sunday afternoon. They remembered it with great fondness, a place of really digging into the word. They would remember Sunday afternoon fellowship. They would remember Monday night Bible study. They would remember Tuesday night uh, at the church for prayer meeting. They would remember Wednesday night when they had music practice. They'd remember Thursday night when they gathered for something else. They would remember youth group on Friday night. On Saturday night, they might go and do something together. And I'd be thinking, my goodness, I'm exhausted just listening to you. So much stuff going on in that space. Now, I want to say this, and I'll say this publicly as a pastoral leader, I do not want to create an environment where people, where Christian people are so busy with being Christians that they haven't got time to spend with their neighbours, with the people they work with, to actually engage with non-Christians in the world that we're part of. This is not a new message. It's a message we've made very clear on a number of occasions. We will not fill our calendar so full that you are here every night of the week. And if you are here every night of the week, then I'll be on your case because it's wrong. There's probably three things we need to do. And if you're doing each of these three things, then it's enough. I should have put this on the screen, but I haven't. Worship together, learn together, serve together. Really easy to remember that. Worship together. Get together with God's people and worship like we are this morning. Learn together, be part of a small group, dig into the scriptures in a context where the questions can be wrestled with, where questions can be asked and answered, where fellowship can be experienced, where pastoral care can be part of that journey and serve together. Find something that you can do that shares God's love with the community, with non-Christian people. That's enough. You don't have to do something every day of the week. It's a challenge for you, it's equally a challenge for me because my life can be spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week in church with Christian people and so even I've had to take deliberate steps to get outside that and do things outside the walls of the church. 
we're all in the same boat, our engagement with the world is actually really important, as will become clearer in a second. <clears throat> There's some other lessons that God wanted his prophet to learn too, uh, and I think one of those lessons is summed up in the word common grace. That is that God's blessings are actually poured out across the whole world, upon everybody who is on the face of this earth, Christian or not. It's an interesting comment made by uh, Phyllis Tribble who wrote a commentary on the book of Jonah. She wrote these words. In this chapter, hope, justice and integrity reside not with Jonah but with the captain and sailors. Though they are blameless victims, the sailors never cry injustice. Finding themselves in a dangerous situation not of their making, they seek to resolve it for the good of all. Never do they wallow in self-pity nor do they berate an angry God, condemn an arbitrary world, target the culprit of their dilemma, Jonah, for vengeance or promote violence as an answer. In every respect, they behaved admirably, didn't they? And again, I think for those who were reading this book in ancient times and for us too, one of the things that God wants to impress upon us is that he actually bestows gifts of wisdom and insight and beauty and goodness across all of humanity. That doesn't save people, but God's blessings fall upon all. But Jonah's heart attitude was a little bit like this. Here is a picture that was taken quite a few years ago. It's a child's birthday party. In fact, it was my birthday party. And if you're really good, you'll be able to figure out which one I am. I'm not going to ask you in case you get it wrong. But um, <clears throat> there I am, the head of the table with my bright red jumper on, about to stuff something into my face. I've got no idea what it is. And gathered at that birthday kitchen table uh, are my friends there on my immediate left is my friend Bill, who was... Um, my best mate, and then uh, another one whose name I can't remember. <laughs> and then the other guy in red, Patrick, from up the road, and then a couple other kids. My brother is there in the photo with the purple hat on and still wearing his school uniform, curiously enough. Um, and another boy from up the road whose name was Andrew, and then Greg, and then someone else I don't recognise. And look at the table, isn't it wonderful? covered with delicious goodies. I can identify things like party pies there. There's some other stuff. I was going to blow the photo up a bit to have a look to see what we were eating at birthday parties in 1970-something. Now, just imagine. See, this is how Jonah wanted life to work. There's this great party, there's this enormous uh, banquet put before people... And just as the food is all put on the table, the parents come along and say, all this is for family only. Faces fall in disbelief. The youngest person in the group at the bottom of the table starts to cry. My brother and I, because we're family, we make right little pigs of ourselves. Um, but everyone else just has to watch on in dismay. Now, it's an unlikely, it's an unbelievable scenario, but not all that 
far from what Jonah wanted to believe in, so much as he wanted the blessings of God to be reserved for his people only. It doesn't work like that. God in his grace sends the rain on the pagans. God in his grace sends the sunshine. God in his grace blesses everyone. And such a grief it is to God when they turn their backs on him even so. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You've heard, it's, uh, sorry, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's blessings are spread out over everyone. We're all in the same boat in that sense. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God blesses everybody. He expects us to acknowledge that as his uh, and worship him for that. But it doesn't mean that he restricts it because his love is for all that he has created. The scriptures tell us as much. And here is a book that was written to a nationalistic people, a nationalistic prophet as the main character, uh, to encourage his people to humility and respect for people who don't believe. And if we lack, uh, sorry, the lack of mercy in Jonah and in us if we act like Jonah demonstrates that Jonah's hearts and ours too are a stranger to the mercy and grace of God. If we actually don't treat others mercifully and with compassion, there's a very good reason to uh, expect to understand that we ourselves don't understand mercy and compassion. Let's, uh, let's jump a couple of things, uh, just a couple more observations from this passage. Verse 7, it's clear the sailors had more spiritual acuity, they were more tuned in than Jonah was, they knew the storm was more than a freak of nature, so they peppered Jonah with a whole heap of questions. Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble, what do you do, where do you come from, what is your country, where are your people? Well-ordered question, Jonah's kind of being hit with all these questions, one after the other. In a nutshell, they're asking Jonah about what his purpose is, what is your mission, what is your place, where do you come from and who are your people? They're questions about identity, aren't they? And in ancient times, as is not dissimilar in some places today, those things are very tightly tied together. If you, uh, you know, years ago met a person from Ireland, you might rightly assume Catholic religion affiliation. You met a person from Thailand, you might rightly assume uh, Buddhist religious association. And so they were trying to figure out some of this stuff. But there are some places where it's much harder to do that. And there are questions that they were asking Jonah to work out. Well, as I say, there are questions about his identity. And that's significant. Because we all kind of work on where our identity fits. If you were to answer this question, it gives you a bit of a clue where you kind of ground your identity. I'm significant in this world because... I'm significant in this world because I'm a farmer who supplies food, I'm a teacher who is helping prepare the next generation, I can run faster than anyone else on Saturdays at Park Run, I'm a busy mother raising two children or whatever. Let me just give you something to think about. 
In the scripture it tells us that we've been created in the image of God, true? You and I, everybody in the world has been created in the image of God, which means that we have been created to actually reflect God's character. In and of ourselves, we don't have um, an identity as such. A little bit hard to get your head around this. But if we've been created in God's image, we have been made to reflect something. In a perfect world, we ought to reflect God's character. In an imperfect world, we reflect all sorts of other stuff, our priorities around whatever it might be. The question here is, where is Jonah's identity grounded? And the answer is rather an interesting one because although the last question that Jonah was asked from what people are you, the first answer he gives is, I am a Hebrew. Jonah's identity is grounded very much in his race. Interesting. His identity was not first and foremost in who he was in God. It's not first and foremost in being a worshipper of the Lord. I am a Hebrew. I am significant because of my race. And so the rest of the story unfolds. We won't go through it step by step. You know uh, what happens next. Jonah was identified as the collective cause of their misery, what to do with him. Jonah's advice to the sailors, weird advice. Throw me into the sea. Why would he say that? Is he, is he taking the ultimate form of escape? No. Is he actually so desperate to get away from God, the only way that he can see of escaping is to be thrown into the sea and be drowned? It would make sense, I would have thought, if Jonah had simply said, I will repent and do what God uh, wanted me to do, the sea would have calmed down, that would have been enough. Why, why throw me into the sea? The ultimate form of escape, perhaps, we don't know for sure. But at last, there's some light in this story because now, for the first time, Jonah is starting to think about people beyond himself. And so Jonah is tossed into the sea, his life given as a substitute for the lives of the sailors, which, of course, if you know your scriptures, points to a later substitution. And in fact, Jesus actually alludes to this in the Gospel of Matthew. He talks about the sign of Jonah, this idea of one life being given for another, the substitution of Jesus on the cross. And one of the great mistakes that Jonah made was thinking that if he gave himself in full obedience to God, God would not be able to uh, look after him. God was not committed to his joy or welfare. But let me just finish with this comment. This substitution of Jesus going to the cross for us is the evidence, is all the evidence we need that the God we worship is not only capable but is completely trustworthy. We can ground our identity in him we can know that he will look after us because he stands in our place. Well, next week we're going to visit Jonah in the middle of uh, a real uh, tribulation, praying from the belly of a fish, the most curious prayer. We'll hand over to Roderick to look after that next week and we look forward to that. And I'm sure Roderick's looking forward to it as well, thinking, what am I going to do with that passage? If not Roderick, we can always fall back to Bob because he's, um, <laughs> he's ready to go. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks again for your word, for the lessons contained therein. We thank you that um, it was a word for people who were struggling to see beyond themselves, who, who 
as sometimes we are also guilty of, believe that your blessings should be exclusively for those who acknowledge you as Lord. And we do experience that. We know that you bless us. We know that you're at work. We know that you are watching over our hearts and lives. But we see you at work in other places too. And so we pray that the hearts and lives of those around us who know your grace and who know your goodness in the sense that they have homes, they have families, they eat food, we pray that they might recognise where that comes from. It's not found in themselves, it's not out of our own good works, it comes out of the hands of a gracious and loving God. Just reveal yourself in that space and help us too to live lives that demonstrate that in a very real way. God bless us as we continue to study your word, grow us as we reflect on what you're teaching us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Zach.